Welcome to the Land of Goshen podcast. This is where you can hear the latest sermons from Goshen Presbyterian Church in Belmont, North Carolina, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. For more information on Goshen Presbyterian Church, please visit GoshenPCA.com. That's GoshenPCA.com. Our reading this morning is 2 Samuel 19, verse 40 through the end of chapter 20. So 19 verse 40 through the end of chapter 20. Sometimes the chapter divisions do not follow the story, so we'll have to make some adjustments. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. And all the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel accompanied the king. And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why had our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household and all David's men with him over the Jordan? Then all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is a close relative to us. Why then are you angry about this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has anything been taken for us? But the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten parts in the king. Therefore, we also have more claim on David than you. Why then did you treat us with contempt? Was it not our advice first to bring back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were harsher than the words of the men of Israel. Now a worthless fellow happened to be there whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king, from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. Then David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, the concubines whom he had left to keep the house, and placed them under guard and provided them with sustenance, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as widows. Then the king said to Amasa, Call out the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to call out the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which he had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, so that he does not find for himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. So Joab's men went out after him along with the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. And they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was dressed in his military attire, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened at his waist. And as he went forward, it fell out. Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa was not on guard against the sword which was in Joab's hand, so he struck him in the belly with it and poured out his inward parts on the ground and did not strike him again, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai his brother pursued Sheba the son of Bichri. Now there stood by him one of Joab's young men and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. 
But Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he removed Amasa from the highway into the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came by him stood still. As soon as he was removed from the highway, all the men passed on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, even Bethmecca, and all the Barites. And they were gathered together and also went after him. They came and besieged him in Abel, Bethmecca, and they cast up a siege ramp against the city, and it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab were wreaking destruction in order to topple the wall. Then a wise woman called from the city, Here! Here! Please tell Joab, come here that I may speak with you. So he approached her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she spoke, saying, Formerly they used to say, They will surely ask advice at Abel. And thus they ended the dispute. I am of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You are seeking to destroy a city, even a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Joab replied, Far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. Such is not the case. But a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba the son of Bichri by name, has lifted up his hand against King David. Only hand him over and I will depart from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman wisely came to all the people. And they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they were dispersed from the city, each to his tent. Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. Now Joab was over the whole army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was over the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was the recorder, and Sheba was scribe. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jerite was also a priest of David. That last little bit, that list of officials, indicates to us that we have reached the end of the chronological account of David's reign. There's more to be said. The author of Samuel is not done. We have not reached the end of the book. But everything after this is out of chronological order. It's been lifted out of the story because it's important enough to appear at the end on its own. Now, as you come to this, the end of the chronological story of David's reign, you're probably looking at it and going, really, that's it? That's where it stops? I was expecting more. This kind of fizzles, you know? You expect a bang, you get a whimper. Well, yeah, that's the truth. You see, all of this is following from what we said earlier. This is all dealing with the fact that the Lord said the sword would not depart from the house of David. This story is anticlimactic. We reached the end and we're scratching our heads going, what on earth? is going on here that the author stopped with this. I think there are two important lessons we learn from this account. 
And I want to discuss both of those. The first lesson we learn from this account is that the ongoing effects of sin are devastating. The ongoing effects of sin are devastating. The first thing we need to understand is that sin itself is ongoing. It sticks with you. Look at Joab. Remember when David first came to the throne and there was his rival, uh, Ishbosheth, who had a general named Abner. Sorry, it took me a second to get that A word out. You've got Amasa, Absalom, Abiathar, Abner. The A names start to run together in the story of David. You've got Abner, who was head of the northern army, and he comes to David and says, I'm willing to make peace. And David says, I make you head of the army in place of Joab. This is the beginning of David's reign. And what does Joab do? Does anyone remember? He murders Abner. Straight up murders him. He even stabbed him. Just the same as he does here. The end of David's reign. David tolerated Joab's sin. It became part of David's legacy. And now at the end of his reign, Joab is walking up to another man, another rival for his position as head of the army. He takes him by the beard with his right hand because he's not watching his left hand, which has the sword in it. And he stabs him. And he takes that position. The same sin that was there at the start of David's reign is still dogging him at the end of his reign. And each of us can testify that that is how it is in the Christian life. When you came to Christ, you turned your back on certain sins, did you not? Let me ask you, have those temptations left you? Have those sins totally departed from you? No. Because the hard truth of the Christian life is although we have been transformed, although we have been given new life, although we have been changed, it remains the case that along with our new nature, we still have our old nature. And it still wants its way. And the hard truth is, until the day you leave this life, that sin nature is going to be with you. When you read the old Puritans, they talk a lot about their sins. They talk a lot about the fact that they are aware of the sins that corrupt and stain their nature. And you notice as the writers get more and more mature, they write more and more about their sin. And I used to think, boy, these guys were depressed. You'd think a guy maturing in the Lord would be full of joy, and they were. Their writings do also reflect joy. But what someone pointed out is with the Puritans, the more mature they got, they sinned less but they could see their sin more clearly. And they recognized the greatness of their sin with a greater appreciation. So the more mature they got, the more they mourned over their sins. 
the more their sin saddened them. The fact that sin is always with us reminds us that we have to be on guard. Even Paul made the point that whenever he tried to do good, he found sin was at his right hand. We have to be on guard against sin because it's not going away. You can be having your best day. You can be on fire for the Lord. You can be serving God boldly. You're out bearing fruit for the Lord and you're not thinking about sin. And I'm going to tell you that's when it'll get you. One, because you're fruitful, so the devil wants you to stop. And two, your guard's down. I like the imagery in Pilgrim's Progress. When Pilgrim was given all his armor, do you know what the only part of his body that wasn't armored was? Do you remember from the book? The back. He couldn't let his guard down. He couldn't turn around in front of the enemy or he would most assuredly get shot. He had to face the devil head on at all times. That has to be the Christian's outlook. We must face our sin head on at all times because it is not going anywhere. It will weaken. It will be mortified. We nail it to the cross, but it is going to hang on till our last breath. And as long as it is in our lives, it has effects. And one of those effects is division. You read this story and you're like, didn't I just leave this party? This is basically the story of Absalom just condensed, short form. The author has given us one long account of rebellion. Now here's a short rebellion. But it's still rebellion. You've still got Israel fighting Israel. In this case, they've divided in a way that if you read your Old Testament, you're familiar with this. North versus South. Israel versus Judah. They've divided that way again. And are warring. They're divided, ironically, at first, over which of them has more claim in David. Don't they sound like children? I'm the parent's favorite. No, I'm the parent's favorite. No, I'm the parent's favorite. So you've got Israel versus Judah. David versus Sheba. Joab versus Amasa. Sheba versus Abel Beth Mekah. Division. Sin always divides. First, it divides society. Have you ever noticed our society? People today talk about how people are screaming at each other and yelling at each other. And isn't it terrible? Look, I've read history books. We've been screaming and yelling at each other forever. Have you ever read old headlines from the 1800s? Have you ever read headlines from the 1700s? The 1600s? And yes, they had press back then. They said some horrible stuff. Have you ever read Martin Luther? Boy, I love Martin Luther, but he could say some stuff. He didn't pull any punches. I heard one theologian say, Luther is great fun to read out loud. He said some choice things about people he disagreed with. He could get inflammatory. I forget one thing he said. I don't even think I should repeat it from the pulpit. But it's in one of his books of theology. I read it and I was like, wow, that is the funniest thing I've ever read. 
We scream and we yell and we shout. And why do we do it? Because we're not getting our way. Because that person over there is doing something and we don't like it. And we sinfully, selfishly want our way. And they sinfully and selfishly want their way. And we shout and we yell and we protest and we march and we fight. And we pick up guns and go to war. There are only one or two wars in the whole history of history that actually made any sense. Most of them have been about nothing. Men trading lives for real estate, as I heard someone say it. Our society is divided by sin. Our families are divided by sin. You remember the Civil War? Brother against brother, sometimes very literally. Think of every family you know. If you have a kid, if you have more than one kid, I don't have to prove to you what I'm saying. You know how it is when you got kids. You get kids two different toys. They each have a toy. They each have a nice toy. What do they do? What did my daughters do just this morning? They fight over who gets to play with which toy. You heard me, Nora. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> she looked up like, oh yeah, the thing with the toys in the fridge. I was there. I had already thought of that illustration and they carried it out. We do this. Our families get divided because of selfishness. Because of our desire to have our way and we hurt the ones we love. Not only is society divided, not only are our families divided, our individual selves are divided. Have you ever noticed it's hard to live with yourself? I don't know about you, but I don't like to think about me sometimes very much because I realize I'm a jerk. If I was me, I wouldn't want to hang out with me at parties. You do stuff that you don't like. You have feelings and emotions and thoughts that you wish you didn't. And you find yourself at war, the old nature of sin and the new nature of Christ struggling against each other. And you have to live with that inescapable tension. And you yourself are divided. That anxiety, that struggle. Folks, this is why we need the gospel. If we're going to see peace in our world, peace in our society, peace in our families, peace in our congregations, and peace in our own hearts and minds, it is only going to come when we submit to Jesus Christ. When we stop making self first and look to Jesus Christ and humbly submit to Him. As long as sin has the upper hand, we are not going to have peace. As long as sin has the upper hand, pain and suffering must follow. 
there's a brief little word here, a little paragraph about the ten women whom David left to keep the house. Does anyone, you remember, I hope, what happened to them? They were raped by Absalom. God told David, you took another man's wife, your wives will be taken. And it happened. The law of God says you can't lay with both a father and a son that's unclean. And David understood now that his son had been with these women, he couldn't be with them again. That would be wrong. Plus, he was a king, and in those days, a king, if another warrior had taken your woman, you didn't do that. What did these women do? Nothing. What crime did they commit? None. They were victims. They were the ones hurt by other men's crimes. This was discipline for what David had done. And the pain fell upon them because Absalom sinned. But they were shut up under guard and lived as widows, cut off from their husband, King David. And they bore the pain and they bore the sorrow. My wife came up with a term for it. She calls them shadow victims. The people who don't sin but have to pay for it anyway. You need to understand something. We talk a lot about how sin will hurt you. About how it will hurt your walk with Christ. About how it will hurt your experience of salvation. About the blessings you can lose and the joy that is obscured. But we need to understand together sin doesn't just hurt you. Sin hurts everyone around you. There are no victimless crimes. There are no victimless crimes. When you sin, other people are going to have to bear the consequences with you. It is not worth it. It is not worth it. I hear people all the time say, well, I'm a loving person. The Bible's full of things that it says is sin, and I just don't agree. If I love other people, isn't that good enough? Let me tell you something. If you're sinning, even in private, you're hurting other people. You are, period. Your sin is changing who you are. And other people are having to deal with that person. Your sin is causing people trouble, and other people are having to deal with that trouble. I'll give you an example. One of the most private and popular sins of our age, pornography. It's rampant. It's everywhere. And you know what? It's been proven to have a very, very tight and large relationship with human trafficking. A lot of those people in those videos are not willing participants. They were bought and paid for. They're slaves. The people say all the time, oh, I'm not hurting anyone. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. There is no sin committed in private which does not have public ramifications. If you truly love God, if you truly love other people, 
Stay away from sin. You know, if the story ended here, I'd have preached a very bold message on sin and you'd all feel pretty bad, right? But the story doesn't end here. We come back to where we started, that little list at the end. You remember? A list of officials. You may say, Pastor, I know you think you can find the gospel in any passage of Scripture, but are you telling me you found the hope of Jesus Christ in a list of officials? Yes, I did. Because let me tell you something, I may have just piled on you the bad news of sin, but the good news is that all the sin you've got cannot overcome the work of God in your life. Because whose officials are these? David's officials. And what kind of officials are they? Royal officials. And what does that mean? Despite all the sin, despite all the division, despite all the pain and the suffering and all the discipline that God poured out, David was still king. He ended his reign sitting on his throne, which means God's gracious covenant that he gave to David was still in place. What did God say? I will build for you a house and your son will sit on your throne forever. David sinned, but David repented because God's Spirit was at work in him. And God forgave him that sin. And He did discipline him. And He told him the sword would not depart from his house, but He left him alive and left him on the throne of Israel. You need to understand sin is going to be a part of your story until the end of your story on this earth. But although sin will be part of your story until the end, sin is not the end of your story. The end of your story is the gospel of Jesus Christ that God has made a covenant with you in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has ratified it by the blood of Jesus Christ and God has forgiven anyone who believes in Jesus Christ of their sins and therefore just as God sustained David until the end, even under discipline, God will sustain you until the end. For I am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed unto Him against that day. He who began a good work in you will continue it until the end. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and I shall raise them up on the last day. The day is going to come when you will leave this life 
And God will purge all the sin from your soul. The day is coming when your soul is going to come back and be reunited to your body. And God is going to purge all the sin nature out of your body. And you're going to stand in front of God. And there's not going to be a bit of sin left in you. There's not going to be a tendency, a temptation, a fault, a failure, gone forever. Because God doesn't forget His covenant. God does not break His word. And as surely as David sat on his throne till the day he died, as surely as Jesus Christ died for your sins and walked out of the tomb, so surely God is not going to let sin have the upper hand over you. We do not struggle against sin in hopelessness. We fight sin knowing that God has already given us the victory. We fight against sin knowing the power of the Holy Spirit is at work within us. And we fight against sin in the full expectation of being rid of it. We are not fighting an equal. We are fighting an insurrection of a defeated enemy. We've already won. All we've got to do is clean up. That's it. Is the fight against sin hard? It's hard. Is it worth it? It's worth it. To see the fruit of a holy life and to begin experiencing the cleansing that Jesus Christ brings even now. Face sin. Acknowledge your sin. Confess your sin to God and repent of your sin, looking to Him to give you victory and to sustain you every step of the way. Let's go to the Lord our God in prayer. We hope this sermon has been helpful to you. If you would like more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ or about Goshen Presbyterian Church, please contact us using the website goshenpca.com where you can find our email address as well as our phone number. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Goshen PCA. Please subscribe to this podcast and feel free to share the good news of Jesus Christ by sharing these episodes.